morning, church. Uh, This morning's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, good morning. Good morning. Why don't we turn our attention to prayer for a moment, just after Sarah did an exceptional job reading the text over all of us as the worship team led us in music. Oh, man, I was just in it today. Um, Let's take a moment to just quiet our hearts before we dive into the beauty and the wonder of what the Apostle Paul has penned by the power of the Spirit for the church throughout the ages. Heavenly Father, we come before you only because out of your generosity and out of your goodness, you spoke us into being. You imagined us to be alive. You desired our good. And when we wanted nothing to do with you, you still wanted everything good to do with us. And so we come, oh, with so many worries, the things that we're conscious of, the things that we're subconscious or unconscious or avoiding. We come with things and weights that are bearing down on our bodies and bearing down on our souls. We come with questions We come longing for answers when we should be longing for direction. God, we come with so much, and yet we know it pales in comparison to the grace that you meet us with. And so, Holy Spirit, we entrust this time to you afresh, anticipating how you're going to shine light in the midst 
of the darkness as we allow the, the word of God to speak into and through and over each and every one of us. Guide me as I preach. Guide us all as we listen. And may you, oh, may, be, may you be made much of. And may we delight in that. <laughs> Such that when we leave this place together, to the various callings to which you've called us, we feel loved, we feel energized, and dare I say it, we feel excited about you walking with us, whatever may come. We pray all these things in the name of our risen King Jesus, by the power of his spirit, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, um, something I'm known for, interestingly enough, it's going to be weird, uh, across uh, campuses with various staff, uh, is that I love the human foot. Um, <laughs> it's just the way it is. There it is, uh, folks. Now, don't, don't get weird. I don't love feet, okay? That sounds weird. I like, and I'm in, in awe of, like, the design of the human foot, <coughs> okay? And I know some of you are like, Gabe, I get that the passage talks about walking, but here's the deal. I love the human foot, and here's why. I, I love to run, and the more I was doing some of these trainings, you know, if you, if you like to run, you know you try to, like, capture every second you can to get a little bit faster, and there's some extraordinary research from people across worldviews, whether they have a, a Judeo-Christian background or an atheistic background, who will look at the human foot and say it was either designed or equipped extraordinarily right? Extraordinarily. Like, I mean, you think about the Achilles. It's like this natural spring on the back. You've got more nerve endings in your foot than almost everywhere else on your body, okay? The way your phalanges were, I could go on, but I'm not because that's my reputation. I go on and on. But here's, here's the deal. Even though I love the human foot, I love to run, I love the way it's been designed and how it equips us to really go the distance and go where we need to go, I also have this problem that I've had ever since I was a kid. Um, I, I consistently roll, pop, sprain my ankles, okay? Ooh, yeah, look at that sucker, huh? Doesn't that feel good? Um, I'll be, you know, out playing sports, or I'll be mowing the lawn, or chasing my kids, and all of a sudden, pop! You know, like, you can hear it, and you're like, oh, that's it, I'm done, you know? And I find myself needing to take a break, because listen, if your ankle isn't working, then your foot is useless, right? If the ankle doesn't work, then the foot... And listen, I can try as much as I can to try to compensate, but the foot, because it's connected to the ankle, it cannot do what the ankle does. It cannot circumvent the ankle. The only thing I can do when I sprain my ankle is actually rest my whole body, my whole, my, my whole leg and put it up, right? I've got to be this guy, right? I've got to put it up. And rice it. Anybody here in sports, right? Like, rest it, ice it, compress it, elevate it. All the things. And the longer I put my foot up, the longer I find myself getting out of shape and finding myself behind in my training paradigm. I have to take it easy. I have to heal. Now, I'm going to say something that's pretty common knowledge. When the body can't work together, it falls apart. When the body can't work together, it falls apart. Now, I have tried, like there, because I've sprained my ankle so many, or both ankles, so many times. Actually, my daughter was playing soccer 
this last spring, and she sprained her ankle, and I was like, oh, sweetie, you got it. Like, you got what I have. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're working on this. Don't let it stop you, but it'll happen again, right? Um, <laughs> know your future, but live with courage in light of it, okay? <laughs> but here's the deal. When, when you sprain your ankle, and then it starts to get somewhat healed, I'll still try to go for runs, and I've asked my doctor, you know, I'm like, hey, is it okay? He's like, yeah, it's going to hurt. You won't damage it. So then what you do is you try to compensate, right? You try, and then when you overcompensate for a wound here, you wear out other parts quicker, right? So your hips start to feel all janky. Your knees get all jacked up. Like other parts of your body that would have been fine if you can run with a normal gait are screaming at you and get worn out a whole lot quicker, and then I find myself, once again, immobile because my whole body hurts, slowly deteriorating in my mind, in my emotions, in my physical nature, barely able to make it. I love to run. It's a place of release, a place of prayer for me. But when the body can't work together, it falls apart. And when you look across the New Testament, um, and really across this letter to the church in Ephesus, Again and again, the people of God, this redeemed community, is called the body of Christ. A body. This metaphor, this image comes up again and again and again. And right here in our passage, the Apostle Paul has a similar concern. You heard it all the way, all the way to the end there, verses 15 and 16, this metaphor of all these joints and ligaments working together, building each other up in love, right? The Apostle Paul has the same concern. That when the body won't work together, it falls apart. Now, when the church does look like this, though, when the church isn't working together, you know, and you find yourself stumbling into a community and it feels like everybody's got their legs up because nothing's really working together, we can't. This is when I find, especially in our deconstruction kind of conversation, that a lot of people who either don't believe in Jesus or love Jesus but are really frustrated at the church, when they come across the church and its wounds and its realities kind of looking like this, this is where I hear a lot of pushback saying, well, listen, listen, Gabe, why is the church any better than my makeshift communities over here? I've got like my two or three friends. Like why do I need the church when it always looks like it's so wounded? Or sometimes you can hear the common quip, right? I don't want to belong to a church. I just want to be the church. And even though conceptually no one person can be the church because it is a communal metaphor, I hear the discontent. I hear the despair when you have a disjointed kind of experience with the body of Christ. And so let's just talk about the common responses to that. Like a common response to those kinds of genuine concerns around the church, some people will say, well, you just got to be unified, right? Just, 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 just be unified, which is a way of saying, well, let's not talk about the issues. Just everybody be quiet and stand around. Like, wh why do we be unified? Because we need to be unified, right? And all that does is it tends to kind of silence conflict and it never addresses the real issues. So it's not just, we're not going to be unified by just saying we have to be unified. And then another response is, well, you're just, you're just young, you're just weak. You just need to grow up, right? Or, or mature or get stronger, which is kind of a shaming response to saying, but I see real issues and those issues are real. Um, so I just need to run through a sprain. <laughs> is that it? 
Is that the answer to this, that life is just full of pain, and if I just grow up, I'll come? No, that's not actually the answer either. And so as we go through this journey of seeking to not just sit with discontent, but seek to reconstruct faith, right? That's this journey. That's the series that we're in, reconstructing faith, walking through this brilliant letter guided by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. We have to ask the question, what does it look like to actually be unified and be strengthened? What actually unifies us and what actually strengthens us as the church? Because it's not unity for unity's sake. That's not the answer. It's not strength for my purposes or your purposes or whatever purposes. We just, it's not just about getting stronger for, strong, for strength's sake. It's actually much deeper than that. It's much richer, and it goes down to the depths of who we are meant to be as the body of Christ. And the Apostle Paul has a whole lot of energy around this section, as we're going to come to see. So if you haven't already, let's explore that together by looking at Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, if you turn there with me, if you've got your Bible apps, go ahead and turn. We're going to look at what it is that unifies and strengthens the body of Christ, okay? And if you don't have a Bible, we've got some on that back table back there. You can take that. That's a gift from us. If you get up and you go grab that right now, you have no, mu- you have no idea how much joy you would bring me. Like, so don't think that's a shaming thing. Like, oh, I didn't bring my Bible. I'll be like, oh, praise God, right? So if, that's, if you're trying to interpret how you'd be received doing that, just know we would celebrate and the angels of heaven would be excited as well, okay? Let's reimagine situations that we often cope with shame, right? <laughs> with appropriate framing. So here's what we're going to do. When we come to this text, I think it's important, instead of just looking at the bits and pieces and working our way through, I want to look at the goal. And so we're going to look through the first 12 verses. We're going to kind of fast forward our way through them. We're going to walk through them, but at a quicker pace to get to verse 13, okay? And then we're going to go back to those passages in greater detail a little bit later. But let's look at our passage, chapter 4, verse 1. We see that the Apostle Paul, he has a lot of intensity. He uses the language urge, okay? This isn't like, hey, you're calling up your friend because you might need a ride to that party later on tonight, right? Instead, this is my car died in a neighborhood. I don't know where I am, and it's midnight, right? Like, please come and pick me up. Please come and pick me, right? Like, there's, there's a difference of urgency about how you're experiencing this. Apostle Paul has a ton of energy. Think about that. Emotional, spiritual energy when he's saying, I urge you. And then he goes on to say to walk in a manner. In other words, to live in this way that actually is in light of the responsibilities and the privileges you have in Christ. What he has here as the calling to which you have been called. You have been called and therefore to him with these responsibilities and with these privileges. Both are true when we are called to Christ. What is the calling? We're going to come to see that in a minute. But not only are we to the walk, but then the way of this walking comes with all these scandalous virtues, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. This sounds similar. It's not exactly the same language, but of bearing a cross, right? And love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. These these virtues were very scandalous in the first century, and they continue to be re-scandalized here in the 21st century century. And then he lays out what is our common ground in Christ that we have. 
But in the midst of all this language of unity that we see in verses 4 and 5 and 6, we then come to see that in the midst of this unity, there is significant diversity. Unity has never meant uniformity or complete assimilation or similarity in the body of Christ. And such that when we get to verse 7, we come to find that each one is given a specific gift, but grace was given to each one of us. There is an individualization that comes with these unique gifts and responsibilities. And then we come to see that each of these are given by a victorious King Jesus. He's come to give gifts to those who belong to him. Why? To build up the body in love. You know, I think this is so important when we think about the, the diversity of gifts and responsibilities because the same way, let's stick with this body metaphor, right? You have all these different kinds of muscles and tendons and joints. If I were to just do one set of stretches, that's never going to make me limber as a whole. If I were to do just one kind of exercise, <laughs> it makes me think of Lady in the Water. This is just going to, anybody seen that movie from M. Night? Right? It's the guy that he only works out one arm. He's got like this giant arm. Well, that's all that's important is this one arm. He just wants to be able to show off that one arm, right? That's awkward. That's weird. Okay, let's all be clear. Nobody's looking for that. If that's a part of your strengthening series, I mean, goodness gracious. But not only do we have these different muscles, we need different exercises, and therefore we need different people with different responsibilities to build up the whole body. And then when we get to verse 12, we see that they, we, we work together to actually build up one another in love. And without the diverse gifts and responsibilities together in a messy community, then we will never be as strong or as healthy or as whole as we would be on our own. This is the body metaphor that's coming to the fore throughout this. Now, there's a bunch of different metaphors, but we're going to follow this one as the primary one here for this morning. And the reason, once again, that the body is built up, right? It's strengthened. It's matured as this body of Christ is not strength for strength's sake. It's not unity for unity's sake. Here we find the secret when we get to verse 13, the goal. And it all has to do with this word until. So look with me here at verse 13. The apostle Paul writes, until... We all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or adulthood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. All of this is done, this unity, this strength, this building up is done till at a point in time, yes, we are unified in the faith. That means we have a similar framework as to what we believe, as to how the world works, as to the very direction and trajectory that we are headed together. It has to do with what we believe and how we live that out. It's not just ideas, but it's a whole life framework. To know something is to do it, and to not do it is clear evidence that you do not know it. This is the Hebrew understanding of knowledge. And more than that, just these broader ideas and framework on reality, it has everything to do with a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus, the Son of God. The knowledge of the Son of God. Once again, this is not a pop quiz moment. 
Now, there are facts the similar way that when you have a relationship with someone, you know that they have a size 11 shoe and they have brown hair. There are facts that are true to that person that when you get to know them, you get to also know these facts about them. But it's not merely knowing the facts. It's walking with that person for who they actually are, not always what you just want them to be. All the worst relationships are having a relationship with someone hoping that they'll finally become who you really want them to be. Instead, it's walking with someone for who they are. Yeah? And deep knowledge as to who the Son of God is. And then to the mature manhood or adulthood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we as the body actually have the stature measured up against Jesus that people go, oh, he or she or they walk like Jesus. Oh, man, they, they have the similar posture, the similar movement, the similar stride, the gait, the stance, the maturity that makes me think a lot of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. And so we see that all of this is building, that the people of God, the very body of Christ, might grow, yes, in unison and be strengthening and building one another up that the body of Christ might look like the body of Jesus such that we love what he loves, we walk how he walked, and when the people around us look in on the church, they go, my goodness, that looks like a cross being resurrected. My goodness, this looks like death. But the way they die for one another is beautiful. Wow, look at the way that they care for one another. This makes me think of Jesus. And herein we find the secret to unity. The secret to growing stronger is when the body of Christ commits to becoming the body of Jesus, she stands tall together. This is our calling, friends. Our calling isn't to find Jesus and hope he's a nice talisman to finally get what we thought we wanted. Our calling is not finally that Jesus is going to make all of our dreams come true because there are certain ones that, frankly, need to be adjusted rather than fulfilled. Our calling is that we as the community show up in the world whether gathered or scattered, and people look at us and they go, that looks a lot like the body of Jesus with his nail-scarred hands, dying for those who reject him, but not reviling or mocking in return. A selflessness built on the framework of grace, knowing who you are, dying for your very enemies, even if they happen to be sitting next to you in church. You know, Bonhoeffer is someone we like to quote a lot around here. And there's a brilliant quote from The Cost of Discipleship, and we often know the quote in the middle of what I'm about to share, but I'm going to give a little bit of the context today because I think the broader framework that he lays out here is exactly what the Apostle Paul is speaking over the church. Bonhoeffer writes, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ's suffering, which every man or woman must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old person, which is the result 
of his encounter with Christ, as we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, here we go, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther, speaking of Martin Luther, who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. When the body of Christ commits to becoming the body of Jesus, she stands tall together. And this is where you really start to understand the robust nature of this oneness. Look back with me at verse 4. You find that there is one body. What body is that? That is the body of Jesus. And what did Jesus do with his body? He came and he picked up a basin and towel and he served those that were lesser than him. What did Jesus do with his body? He was constantly inconvenienced, sought to love and serve those who came around him. Not compromise his morals, to be clear, but yes, compromise the mores of the day, going alongside those that were considered the untouchable. Till he finally, and as was directed across every gospel count, was always setting his heart and mind to the cross, to die for the world, not as an accident, but the very purpose of his coming, embodied as the very Godhead for the sins of the world. And then he rose again through his death. He defeats death to provide life for us. And now we, as his body, do the same. This is a clear connection that we cannot parse out. Dying to self was not an old regime. It is now the very calling to walk with Jesus. That's one body, one spirit. What does the spirit do? Oh, the Spirit makes us more like Jesus. (laughs) He's come to reside in us and to refine us. And yes, he's the down payment of our inheritance, but he's continuing and will complete the good work he's begun in you. What is that good work? Fulfilling my dreams and making sure I'm comfortable. No, making you more like Jesus. And then you are called according to one hope. What's the hope? That when you die for people, Jesus sees you and your death actually means life. That no matter what comes your way, resurrection life is your calling because the cross is your life. One faith. Oh, what is faith? It is an embodied trust. It is not merely, although it, is do, it does not discount thoughtful theology and thinking, whether that's inductive or deductive processing. Yes, yes, yes. But at the end of the day, it shows up in your life. And one faith as a church means we're headed in the same trajectory, going about the same path with the same cross, even though it may be narrow versus very broad. One baptism. Oh, the baptism. (laughs) The immersion into Christ and into his body. Now, the very act of baptism is an act to celebrate with your whole embodied self what God and Christ has done. And what's the declaration we make over you? Buried in the likeness of his death and then raised to new life. It's the enactment of the gospel on display. And listen, if you've not been baptized in November, (laughs) 
We are hosting baptism here for all five campuses at the downtown campus. Talk to me, friends. You've been waiting. Now's the time. All right? There's an opportunity to celebrate with our sisters and brothers across campuses what God and Christ is doing in you. And we can do that here. So talk to me, please. Plug over. One God and Father of all <laughs> who's longing for all of his children, who's over all and through all and in all. It's not just one because we hold abstract ideas in common. It's because all of that shapes who we are and how we show up in the world and whose we are in the world such that we are known, which is all over this passage and all over Ephesians, by our love. Is that not what Jesus says in John chapter 13? If there's going to be anything that they're going to know you by, it's by how what? You love one another, right? They're going to know you by your love. And that's not some ill-defined love that I get to put, like my little suitcase, and I'm going to use, you know, my skinny jeans when other people are going to use, you know, their bell bottoms. No, no, no. <laughs> it's a suitcase where Jesus has laid out the wardrobe. And we keep going back to the cross. We keep going back to his life, his practices, and his precepts. And we say, oh, that's what's in this suitcase called love. And we put that on. And we walk around looking, acting like him. And when we do, when the body of Christ commits to becoming the, bo or the body of Christ commits to becoming the body of Jesus, we stand tall. But when not, we get tossed around, friends. We get shaky. We get uncertain. Look with me at verse 14. This is why he goes to, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You see, if we are not pulled by this calling, if we do not have the common goal set before us as the people of God, if we are not more and more together encouraging one another and building up one another in love to be like love personified, love incarnate, then we're going to get thrown around as a church. We're going to chase all these different fads we're going to get confused with what is God's heart for justice and mercy and peace and reconciliation and think it's just about me and mine. We're going to get consumed with power grabbing. We're going to associate things that aren't the gospel with the gospel, and we'll get thrown around, and we will get utterly divided, broken, and destroyed. So what do we do? Well, really, the job of the body of Jesus is to die <laughs> so that we might rise again. So here is our call to action. When we look at the body building itself up in love, we hear the call to commit to die for others like Jesus. I know that's really simple. I know in some sense some of you are nodding along, but man, that is so difficult to actually live. I mean, the paradox that dying people are standing by the Spirit and actually reflect Jesus. Go back to verse 2. Look at these death actions. Humility. That's not just a posture of our heart, you know, like, oh, I've, I'm really humble. Oh, sure you are, right? 
Suddenly, the moment you claim it, you've lost it, right? Because it's much more about a posture. Humility in and of itself stops focusing incessantly on itself, but it focuses on others with sacrifice. Gentleness. That's about dying to self and actually instead of just saying, I said what I needed to say, it's asking, how was that received? A gentleness, an awareness of the people you're related to in Christ and to those around you. Patience. Okay. Waiting instead of forcing. That's death. Some of us more than others. I don't know how many times my mom told me growing up, be patient. You know, like suddenly. Bearing with one another in love. Carrying each other, each other's burdens, enduring sometimes one another rather than avoiding. And this means it looks like doing these exact things for the ones that feel the most difficult, for that sister in Christ who you believe has a really wacky political ideology, for that brother in Christ who's never grateful for your kindness and almost assumes it. That sister in Christ who's constantly overbearing. That brother in Christ who can read zero social cues. And so when you see them in the room, you find something to do. You know, like, let's be real. Like, this is the communal life that requires you dying to yourself in a way that pursues the life of others such that when we get to the end of Ephesians 3, it's this love that we're building up. Like all these joints and ligaments, we're working together with the same framework of the gospel, with the same cruciformed life, anticipating, expecting that as I'm dying for you, you may not die for me, but man, it's beautiful when you just see each other dying for each other, constantly pursuing the ways of Jesus. This is what the body is meant to do as it's building itself up. You got to understand, when you exercise, you're tearing your muscles, right? Do you know this? When you're actually going about exercise, it causes trauma to the body. And then in the midst of that trauma, it heals back stronger. There's something about the body that God has designed that when you work it, you're actually ripping muscles and actually extending tendons. And then through that process, over a period of time, it actually makes you stronger. So yes, it may be painful to stay connected. It may be painful when you're being worked out, but it's actually making us stronger together. And then you get to this fascinating phrase, and I'm just going to pick this one as an example. Speaking the truth in love, right? Verse 15. Now, this is is an often a space where somebody says, See, Gabe, I just had to say it. I loved them, therefore I just had to tell them their truth, right? I just had to do it. Now, there are times where we have to say hard things. But how I just described it is never the posture that's spoken of here. Actually, the word speak isn't in the Greek. Now, it's assumed a little bit, but really, if you want a more literal translate it, it's truthing in love. So what that means is that there are practices, there are relationships and words that all encompass reality, what is true to the nature of the universe, therefore revealed in the gospel. So you show up self-sacrificially in a relationship such that you have the relational foundation that when you say the hard thing, they already have actions that have spoken truth, now words that are added to the truth, and they know you're going to continue to die for them as you walk with them. 
You see, and we're going to look more at this next week, but it's not just the why. So many times we look at speaking truth and love, and it's the why. Well, I have to speak the truth. Why? Because I love them. It's also the how. How do you speak? Are you listening? Are you aware? That doesn't mean you have to change necessarily your convictions, but how you show up when you say those things has a massive impact. And we're going to look more at the details. There's some real practical stuff that we're going to see from the Apostle Paul next week on that. But for today, something that's really important, I think, for us to be asking ourselves is this. Where are you asking others to die but unwilling to die yourself? If this is a community of mutual dying to self, of building one another up, we're shaped as the body of Christ to represent the body of Jesus. This is so important to Paul. Are there people in your life who are asking you this question? And in the midst of this, I'm going to say a really uh, controversial statement, uh, I think. What's also really important to Paul is that leaders in the church are here to help us die well. Not necessarily to help us have the best life, but to help us die well. Verses 7 through 12, that's what we're seeing here. Verses 7 through 12, you have this extraordinary picture of leadership where it comes from, whether they're paid or they're unpaid, and how they are to go about the body of Christ. Because listen, what the Apostle Paul says is that these leaders are gifts in verses 7 through 9. Now, I know this is weird. I'm a leader in the church, and I'm speaking on this, but it's in the text, and we can't skip over it because I feel uncomfortable, okay? Okay. And because, well, Gabe's a leader, so I'm not going to listen to him about leadership in the Bible. Hopefully you're listening more to the text than just because I'm saying it, right? And what we have here is an extraordinary picture because actually what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's quoting Psalm 68. And he's describing Jesus as we've seen him throughout Ephesians. Even though he died, he defeated death with his death. And then he rose again, and he's victorious. And so he's quoting from Psalm 68, and he's seeing victorious Jesus ascending to his throne. And in the ways, but he makes a slight twist, in the ways that kings would often in their victory received gifts. Here what you see, and this is a slight twist, instead of receiving gifts, because of who Jesus is in his victory, he's giving gifts. And who is he giving gifts to? He's giving gifts to the church, and he's giving leaders. Don't miss this. These are people he's won in battle. And if you think about the Apostle Paul's story, it wasn't just like, oh, I chose. He's going to Damascus, and Jesus is like, stop, right? This, you can imagine the Apostle Paul thinking through his own narrative here. And with these different responsibilities and roles, the, the purpose of these leaders is to serve the church. But there are different kinds of gifts. And in a similar way that I'm just grateful that the body um, not every part of the body has to do what every part of the body does. Aren't you glad that eyes don't have to smell? Wouldn't that be weird? Or feet have to taste? <laughs> I mean, I love feet, but not that much. I mean, that's crazy, right? There are certain things. The eye can see a splinter in the hand to help guide its removal, right? The hand can help massage a cramp out of the calf. There are different responsibilities and roles especially as it pertains to the leaders here on display and what God is doing, yes, through them. But I also say that the reason I think that's controversial is because I know a lot of people, a catalyst for your deconstructive journey has been leadership. 
in the church. Either seeing leadership as a nuisance to what you really want and feeling like you were confronted and you're like, how dare you? This is my life. I'm going to do what I want. Or the flip side, you venerated these leaders so much and then they fell and it crushed you and you thought, how could they? How could I feel so betrayed even in their own failure. And those are both very real. But what we see here displayed in the text is that leaders are gifted servants called to serve the church to become gifted servants in all of life. Everybody's called to be a gifted servant. Everyone who's dying to self. This is what we see in verse 11, right? They are equipped. The the point of these leaders is to equip all of the followers of Jesus, these holy ones, for the work of service. Now, the, the translation we have in the English Standard Version is ministry. If you have an NIV, it translates it service. I think that's a better translation of this word. The idea is that leaders are gifted servants who are seeking to equip the whole church to be gifted servants for all of life. We're all in this enterprise to grow together. We just have different responsibilities along the way. And part of that might be pastoral staff. Part of that might be leaders of various ministries who are unpaid. We have a whole preaching circle of volunteers that are gifted teachers who are teaching through church for Monday and will be preaching next week, right? So there's an aspect of not just teaching, but there's also the space where leaders primarily or more like acting coaches. Dr. Timothy Gombas in his book, The Drama of Ephesians, I think brilliantly lays out how the church is living out this victorious life in Christ. Christ seated on his throne. He's given these gifts. Now we are in him, so therefore we are victorious, but it looks like death. And the job of a leader is actually to say, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus by bearing your cross. This is what it looks like. Oh, I know you think it looks like this, but here, let's go back to the scriptures. Actually, what the scriptures have to say, what God has revealed is saying that you're pursuing your death, but not in a way that's like Jesus in a way that's destructive and harmful and the job of a leader is to be like a coach saying okay now you're going to stand over here because that's where the spotlight's at and then you're going to walk over right there's this element of improvisation as well as coaching and guidance that we might look and feel and show up more like Jesus that's why I'm here I want to guide us in this subversive and glorious way that really contradicts a lot of what we see around us And the reason is, finally, throughout history, we find that the body of Christ has only stood strong when she dies. You know, it's fascinating, verse 9, it's like the Apostle Paul goes on this weird tangent, like after he quotes that Jesus has ascended and he's given out these gifts, then suddenly he goes, right, he ascended, what does it mean? (laughs) But that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. That feels like a tangent, but I actually don't think it's a tangent. I think it's very similar to what he's doing in Philippians chapter 2. He's saying, listen, (laughs) the only way he's ascended is because he came all the way down, not just to the earth, but all the way to the grave, and that's how he won. Don't forget the dissension. Don't forget the way he went down. You can focus on how he went up, but don't ever, ever forget how he started going up was by going down. That is how we are as the church. If we ever hope any longing to actually walk with him, then we got to die to self, friends. we got to follow our Jesus all the way down to death. When it costs greatly, when it actually, believe it or not, feels like death in some situations, knowing that God is with us. And I know it can sound like I'm just banging the same drum over and over again. That's because the Apostle Paul does. 
in every one of his letters, he goes back to Jesus' death and resurrection. He says, this is the model. Oh, this is what's going on over here? Let's look at his death. Are you dying to self? Are you dying to each other? You don't know? Okay, this is the model. If you want life, this is the path. It's got to go through the cross. He does it again and again and again and again. And then he says, and we all have the inclusion there in Christ. No matter your cultural, your gender, your background, no matter what you've done in Jesus, this is the same path. No one's too good for it. No one's too bad for it. So if we want unity and we want strength, we don't need a complex strategy. You don't have to have a Ph.D., You just got to have the cross before you, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. So hear the call to commit to die for others like Jesus. Where do you need to die for those around you? You may be surprised at the life that breaks in. Let's pray. This is your church. Lord Jesus, you are the head, we are the body. May this body be animated by the head. May this body of Christ look more and more like the body of Jesus, extending dignity and honor to one another and dying for one another. May this body, empowered by the Spirit of Christ, be refined to look more and more like Jesus, to know the belongingness of Jesus, that in Christ, this language that shows up again and again, that the apostle, that we are in Jesus, that we are in Christ, that we are seen as sons and daughters. So may we live according to the calling to which we have been called with its responsibilities and its privileges holding to the common hope we have as the one body, following the one Lord, immersed in the one baptism, all for your glory, Heavenly Father. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.